Live. Live. Live from This is the Just End the Suffering Podcast. For the win. Got it! Here's your host, Mike Phillips. What's up, everybody? Welcome to the latest episode of the Just End the Suffering Podcast with New York Sports Off Long Suffering Fan. I'm your host, Mike Phillips. Got another NBA playoff show for you today. We did our big NBA playoff preview over the weekend. Welcome to Mark Burnham of the New York Post. Today, we're going to take a deeper dive into the Nets. We're going to join by Alex Schiffer of the Athletic. We last talked to Alex last year, and the Nets were in the bubble, getting ready to take on the Bubble season, much different team this time around. NBA title expectations. They're joined by Alex and Justin May to talk about what's going on at Brooklyn. They're up 2-0 in their series against the Celtics as of recording time. It'll be fun to sort of catch up with Alex, see what's going on there, set expectations for what could happen to the Nets throughout the playoffs. Make sure you're liking the other show, Physics 2-Minute Drill, where I lay in on the injured Mets. Since the last time we talked, there have been a lot of issues with the injuries. The Mets have had more guys on the injury list, but they're still afloat. We'll tell you what needs to happen for them to keep staying atop the NL East, or at least in the hunt for it in the two-minute drill. But we'll get it all started with this week's opening tip, where we're going to take a look at the Knicks as they get ready for Game 2 tonight against the Atlanta Hawks. We're recording on Wednesday the 26th, right after this. Three, two, one. Y'all ready for this? The opening tip. Right, opening tip time, talking New York Nick basketball, and the first game did not go as planned on Sunday night. They lost game one, 107-105 to the Hawks. Trey Young dropped in the game winner, .9 seconds to go. The crowd had been giving it to him at the Garden all night, and I have to say, great job by the Garden crowd, 15,000. That building felt loud. It felt like the return of sports truly was here with the energy in the building. But the loss nonetheless, and... It was one of those things that was frustrating because you watched that game. I watched it again on GP because, of course, I love watching Breen, Mike Breen and Walt Clyde Frazier on the call. Clyde was on this point all night long, and the Knicks could not get it. The Knicks could not keep Trey Young from going to his right. He dominated because whenever he gets to his right hand, he's a blow by the defense, gets to the basket, gets to the line in the fourth quarter, and he dominated that game. That was a troubling display for the Knicks because... The Knicks, as we know, do not have the kind of firepower that Atlanta does. Especially true if Julius Randle is not getting going. If Julius Randle is one thing that Knicks fans look forward to. He won the NBA's most improved player this year. He dominated the Hawks. He scored 30-plus points in all three matches in the regular season. But he was awful in game one. Went 6-23 from the floor. The Hawks did a good job defending him because you watched close. They threw a bunch of buys at him. Whether it was Bogdanovich, whether it was John Collins... They put a different wing on him at all times and had Clint Capella sort of lurking by the basket to prevent the drive. So a lot of times Randall's taking those deep contested twos. He made those a lot during the regular season. They were not falling. R.J. Barrett, 6 of 15, not great either. The Knicks were in this game because of two guys. Alec Burks, this is going to be the Alec Burks game the way he was playing. He had 27 points. He was fantastic. Derek Rose was turning about the clock to his Bulls days. He was an impact player when he was on the floor. Expecting both of those things to happen, you're not getting 27 Alec Burks again. I feel like that's very hard to ask. Derrick Rose playing 36 minutes and being 
the impact guy, like he was in Chicago. That's, I think, a tough ass too. Now, they get to game two tonight. They have to win this game to make us a series. Because I don't think you're going down 0-2 to Atlanta and winning four out of six to four out of five to win the series. That's a very tough ask. I think you need to win tonight. You need more out of Julius Randle tonight. You need more R.J. Barrett tonight. And the most important thing tonight, you have to do a better job on Trey Young. You can't let him dominate this game, turn into a track meet. Because if Trey Young is going up and down the floor with you guys, and they're kicking out the shooters, the Knicks are not winning this game. You can't let him get to his right at will. You have to do a better job on him. That's something you have two days to get ready for. Hopefully they figure this out. The other thing the Knicks have to do here and be careful here is they cannot let Atlanta turn this series into track meet. You cannot go up and down the floor with the Hawks because they have more firepower than the Knicks do. Whether it's Trey Young, whether it's the shooters, there are plenty of them. They cannot win a gunfight with the Hawks. This series has to be turned into a street brawl if you want the Knicks to win this game. Simply put, the Knicks have to get down and dirty on defense, go after every ball, play very physical on that end of the ball. They have to make it very difficult for Atlanta to get those open shots. I said prior to the series, Knicks winning six. I still like that pick. I still think this can win this series, but they show up like they did in game one, where Julius Randle's off, R.J. Barrett's off, the Knicks have Trey Young make big play after big play. If they do that again, I'm going to have a lot less faith in that pick. Tonight's a big game at the Garden, and I think they're going to come through, but that's a discussion for another day. We'll see what happens as the series progresses, but up next, we are going to talk about the Nets with Alex Schiffer of The Athletic right after this. Basketball is my favorite sport. I like the way to dribble up and down the court. Just like I'm the king on the microphone. So it's Dr. J and Moses Malone. I like slam dunks and taking it to the hoop. My favorite play is the alley hoop. I like the pick and roll. I like the give and go. Because it's basketball or Mr. Kirch's flow. All right, we are back here on the Just End the Suffering podcast talking Brooklyn Nets basketball as they are up 2-0 in the first round of the playoffs. Joining me today, the guy who covers them for the athletics, somebody I had on the podcast last year when they're getting ready to go into the bubble, Alex Schiffer is here. Alex, how are you? I'm good. I didn't realize it had been that long. Wow. <laughs> yeah, it's a lot different from when you're in the bubble to now, isn't it? Yeah, roster looks a little bit different. <laughs> I will say certainly say so. And I will say of all the first round series, they seem to be in the most cruise control of everybody because they are giving the Celtics no chance to breathe right now. I, I agree. I would say that uh that they uh they've probably looked the best of any first round series team. I mean, obviously, you know, the Sixers um had a decent push from Washington in game one. The the Bucks series, I mean, game one was a nail biter, game two was an absolute blowout. Even on the West, uh, the Western Conference. So yeah, I think that's pretty fair. I mean, they've definitely looked the most in control of their series compared to everyone else of the higher seeds. Yeah, that's a good point. And obviously, you've seen both games. So what's the big takeaway you've seen from these first two games? It's like, oh my gosh, this team's gonna steamroll the championship. They have issues. What's the biggest thing you've noticed watching these two games? Yeah, I mean, they're definitely playing better defense than they did in the regular season. I'm not ready to call them, you know, like like what Virginia is to college basketball or anything like that. But I mean, uh. I definitely think that, that the defense has improved and, and, you know, in game one, I think they need to lean on a lot more than they did last night, but clearly, you know, they've, they've done a good job of bottling up Jason Tatum, which again, he's not a one-of-one one, uh, comparison to Giannis Antetokounmpo, but obviously that, you know, 
they're going to need to limit stars touches and possessions in, in postseason games if they want to take this far. And, and, you know, I, I think Tatum isn't a bad starting point given what they're going to see in the later rounds. Yeah, it's a good point. And the big storyline coming out of game two is the injury of Jeff Green's foot. And they held him out the rest of the game. They didn't need him. They won pretty easily. But is there any level of concern for this injury going forward here? Because they aren't very deep right down low. Yeah, I think a little bit, especially given the way that, you know, I mean, he, he has an NBA record or tied it for most postseason appearances with different teams at seven. So, you know, I mean, he, he's one of the most experienced postseason guys on the roster and obviously has played with just about everyone on the team at some point, whether it was Kyrie and Joe in Cleveland or Kevin and Harden in uh, Oklahoma City. You know, he, he has in-house knowledge that, that a lot of the other guys lack for sure. I, I There was no update on him last night. We didn't get a chance to ask. I I would be a little cautious because some of those foot injuries can can linger. But um, it also wouldn't stun me if he's back out there for game three. I mean, he's taken a lot of shots this year, whether it's to his shoulder and a couple of other places. And he, he's played, you know, the next game or, or only had a miss one or two. So I, I think there's a little bit of concern, but I, I don't think a ton. And uh, obviously, as you said, I mean, he, he's been their best. Uh, the, statistics, yeah, the statistics say he's been their best defender um, in through the first two games. So, I mean, they're, you know, he, he's been a big part of what they do for sure, like you said. Yeah, I mean, obviously, with the way they are playing right now, they're up 2-0. They have the big three clicking. They can obviously sit him out if they want to and get him re- ready for the next round. Like, who would you think they would go to if they have to sit Jeff Green for a little bit? Do you think we more Blake Griffin minutes or, like, more, like, like smaller ball five? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I definitely think you would see probably Nick Claxton and Blake Griffin get get more minutes divided between two. But I also, you know, Steve Nash has gone with eight or has gone with nine for his postseason rotation. I don't see him going shorter to eight, given the loads these guys were already carrying. So I, I agree. It'd be interesting to kind of see where they elect to go. I mean, do you put someone like Alice A. Johnson out there who has some of Jeff Green's length, but maybe not all um, and, and can kind of play some of those spots and switch a bit? I, I think maybe he's a candidate, you know, with some, it's an interesting question because, as you said, you know, they don't have a lot of guys after him. And then do you go super big and put DeAndre Jordan out there for a bit, even just because you might need him in later series? I uh, I don't know what the answer is. I mean, I I think that I think those two guys would probably be the first two you give a look to, maybe even more so DeAndre than, than Alizé because of his postseason experience. But as you said, if he were to miss significant time, where they go as a bench, given their lack, given their depth down low, would, would be a, a fascinating problem for Steve Nash to, to handle. I feel like Steve Nash has an interesting setup this year because this is one where we basically said it's either going to be a sweep in four or the gentleman sweep of five games. So I feel like they're not going to take much longer to get through here. I feel like he's going to use the rest of this series as sort of an opportunity to sort of test his rotation, see what works. Because they did not really have a lot of time with these guys all together in the regular season. They only played nine games together, 202 minutes. So you know, you think about the chance for Steve Nash here to sort of experiment with his rotations here. No, it's almost a free pass for him this round. Yeah, uh, as he pointed out, the amount of time the big three spent on the court together in the regular season is shorter than the Irishman. You said 202 minutes. Irishman's 210 minutes. Um, I, I think, you know, obviously I think winning's the priority. I mean, I think if they have some blowouts or, or, or you know, um, all, you know, Jason Tatum, we'll see what's up with him and his eye too. But um, I, uh, I think that if they have some, um, some you know, some blowout games to where they can – you know, they're, they're trying to get guys to 30 minutes or, you know, 33, 34 minutes a game without overusing them. Maybe they'll probably spend some of the, those time, the, uh, those minutes freelancing or experimenting. But, you know, also, I mean, I think you also play with fire at that point, too. Right. I mean, you know, the, the biggest blessing in Steve Nash's eyes, but they were completely healthy going into the playoffs. You know, you leave those guys out there longer than need to be out there and you risk um, you risk something, you know, you risk bad karma to me. You know, it's like, you know. I've seen teams leave the star player in during blowouts and then it blows up in their face. So I, I think there's some room for that, but I also think that, you know, 
to me, if you can get uh, get them out of there, you know, without having to use them too much and take control of the series, whether it's four or five games, as you said, I don't expect to go past that. I think that, uh, you know, that's the priority. You try to find, you know, you try to pick your spots to try and uh, and experiment where you can. Yeah, I know, like, it's not to Steve. He'd love to have his team win very easily every game. Not to work, he could get his guys rest out of there. But I do think, I wonder if, like, this team had one white knuckler in the series where they had to play hard down. So that would be a benefit to them going further in the playoffs. Yeah, I, I agree. You know, I, I think it's going to be interesting because I had thought that if the Bucks, um, the Bucks Heat series went to six or seven games, which right now it doesn't appear that's going to happen. But if it had, you know, would the Nets be at an advantage in that Milwaukee series because their guys have less wear and tear and 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 usage than than Milwaukee, given the given they have, you know, the Brooklyn would have like a four or five game series. But now it looks like that the Bucks series might be over as quickly as the Nets series. So I. I kind of wondered that too about, you know, the longer they play in some of these series, the better it might serve them. I, I just think that given given the injury histories of some of these guys and everything, and and you know the the teams they're going to face, I think the quicker they can take care of business, the better it, it should serve them. Especially if again, I don't know if Philly's going to have much resistance on their way to the conference finals, but especially whoever comes out of that Nets Bucks series, assuming they both advance, is going to probably need all the breaks they can get against Philly. Yeah, and right now it looks like the Bucks the most likely opponent for the Nets. We saw them play twice in a row at the end of the regular season. Great games. The Bucks won both. So is that something that they can take anything out of those games and sort of use help them get ready going forward? Yeah, it's it's interesting, right? I mean, I think there's there's a lot, not a lot. Now, you know, I think James Harden's presence was missed so much in those games. His ability to manipulate the floor and um and pick apart defenses. I mean, I think that really could have served the Nets well, especially with the defense Drew Holiday was playing on Kyrie. You know, Giannis and KD were having some good battles there. So I think that he could have really, and I mean, Joe Harris was, it was tough for him to get free in those series. I think in those games, excuse me, it's like a mini series. He, um, I think that Harden could really change some of the the dynamics of that series, just given his, his basketball mind. Um, I, I think, you know, glass half full, half empty. I mean, half full, you know, they, those were games, as you said, without Harden, which you look at the way they're playing right now. And he's been one of their best defenders statistically in the postseason through two games. I mean, that can really go somewhere against Milwaukee. But also, as you said, I mean, you know, they Milwaukee's kind of built to stop them with their length and their, um, you know, they have a guy like P.J. Tucker off the bench. They can just throw on KD and not really miss much defensively where the Nets don't really have a guy like that, as we've kind of discussed. So I um, I think it's going to be a that's going to be a really hard series. And um, and, you know, there, there's some stuff to take, especially with the way they guarded Giannis, too. Right. They did him to shoot jumpers and. It worked, but is that quantifiable through a seven-game series when you look at him being a 30% three-point shooter through the season and you know him shooting way above his averages against the Nets? I mean, it's going to be interesting to kind of see what worked in those mini-series for the Nets and if they if they knew what they were talking about and they come to work in a series or they have to make significant adjustments and it turns out that they, you know, they, they had the wrong idea the whole time with some of that. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, as far as the playoffs go, because we're – safely putting them through here. We don't think there's any way to lose to Boston Barnes, something very, very freakish. But like for the rest of the playoffs, who do you think is their X factor? Who do you think is the guy besides like that big three you think could be a big role player for them? I think you got to look at Joe Harris. I mean, there, I think last night with the win, they improved to 13 and one in games where he scores 20 or more points. I just think that he's like the, th- the thermometer for the offense, right? When he's hot, I, good things happen for everybody else. So I, I think that him shooting well against any team is bad news for everyone. And if you saw what Brad Stevens was essentially saying, he's like, look, like, you know, you can't double team these guys because they have someone like Joe Harris that can hit those shots. 
you really have to pick your spots with them. And when he's hitting shots like that, it gets they're you know, they're, they're really, really hard to stop. So I, I just think that you look at what, um, what his shooting brings and how it changes the dynamics of the offense. I mean, when, if he, if he has more games like, like last night's going forward, like it just, I, I have a hard time seeing the Nets losing. Yeah, and I think the other thing while I watch them in the playoffs is the defense because, as you mentioned, they're playing better even in the series. But, again, Boston really only has, like, one big threat to stop. When you're going up against Milwaukee, you tend to the Sixers in the conference finals here. Is this somewhere where they can try and win games, like, 140 to 130, or do they have to do better defensively to get to the finals? I think two things can be true. It wouldn't stun me if they won 140-130, but also with the way they're playing defense, I don't know if it's going to get to that point. So um, I don't expect some of these shootouts that they had in the regular season when they, they really didn't care about defense. They've, you know, even Kevin Durant said after last night's game, he's more worried about their defense and their offense. So I think with that being the priority, they're trying to avoid those games as much as they can. I think if they had to get into a game like that, they're more likely to win than lose just given their offensive firepower. But I, I think that the message has kind of been through the first two games that, you know, they're not trying to win games like that. They're trying to go closer to, you know, I they I think it's 125 or 120 points like their magic number where they they usually win if they get to that number but you know they they held Boston to 93 in the first game and, and obviously last night was a little more up but the game was the game was a little more of a blowout down the line so I mean <clears throat> sorry I think um I think you just look at how they're winning right now I think they'd like to kind of keep this formula off of last night's game more than more than go to the the blowout route the extreme route. Yeah, also, the other thing that's interesting to see there is that when they get, inevitably get to one of these close games where it's down to the last possession, and I know we saw the Knicks Hawks, they, they go to Julius Randle and Nick the shot. That's have three options to potentially take that game winning shot. Like, who would you draw the playoff for if you were on the sideline of the big three of Harden, Durant, and Irving? Yeah, honestly, I mean, you could throw Joe in there too, just based on some of the looks he'd get. I'd have no problem with him taking a wide open three if the other guys are covered, but I, I lean toward Durant just given he's the best of the three of them. But, you know, I mean, that's the luxury they have, right? They have all these options and you have no idea where they're going to go. I, I think I think you can make a case for any one of those guys getting the ball. I, I think it really comes down to the night they're having, though. Who's hot? Who's not? You know, who who's playing well down the stretch and making the key baskets for them? If, if Durant scores 10 of the last, you know, 12 points they have in the final few minutes, I mean, you have to go to him. Same thing if it were Harden or Irving. But I, I think that's the beauty of it is that they, they have so many different ways to keep you on your heels in a situation like that. But you know, because you asked me to pick one, I'd say Durant, but that that's not a knock on the other three guys by any means. No, and I feel like honestly, the most the guy on the most price on the team might be James Harden because both Durant and Irving have rings elsewhere. Harden doesn't, and he has his reputation of like coming up small in the playoffs, especially in the West where he's dealing with Durant and some of these teams. So, like, how important do you think this playoffs is for James Harden to sort of build up his own reputation as a clutch playoff guy? Yeah, I mean, I don't know if he's worried as much about the clutch stuff as he is just about getting the ring. But you know, I, I definitely think that he's got something to prove. As you said, you know, he's. He's been so close in his career, right? I mean, he was a Chris Paul hamstring away from a trip to the finals. And, um, you know, if you in Houston, and, and obviously they've had some really loaded teams there. But I uh, I just think with him, you know, he he's kind of proven. You know, even he, last night he said, you know, Joe had the hot hand. Our priority became feeding Joe. I think that he's handled this really well and kind of knows when to step up and when not to. If he needs to step up in a clutch situation, I'm, I'm sure he's going to get a shot. But I, I don't I don't think he's worried as much about perception as much as just the result this time around yeah for sure and I mean the Nets obviously the result they want to get is obviously they want to at least get to the NBA finals I feel like this is a year where you look at the east where the Sixers have MB but they don't have a ton around him Milwaukee has flawed the West teams are beating each other up like would this be a massive win for the Nets they don't at least get to the final let alone have a shot at winning it yeah I think it's championship or bust I think anything short of a finals appearance would be a disappointing season 
And I think even some would would slap me for saying that. I, I think it's definitely championship or bust, but I, I think at minimum, I mean, if they were to go out in the second round as good as Milwaukee is, it'd be a huge disappointment. The conference finals, as good as Philly is, I, I think I think the same way. Um, I think getting to the finals is absolutely the priority. Yeah, I would agree with that. And I know we've there's a lot of priority on that side of, hey, we need to win this title to sort of make this a Nets town. And we've seen, by the way, the Knicks reception has been in the playoffs, how hard it will be to make the like New York a Nets town. But like, what would winning the first title be mean for them if they were able to pull us off and have the parade in August? Yeah, I mean, I think it would be – it would definitely um... – it would definitely be huge for the fan base and, and them, you know, kind of taking a, a cut out of the Knicks pie. But I don't know. I don't know if the net, you know, I feel like the Nets are always going to be compared to the Knicks because of geographic proximity. But like, you know, the Knicks have been in the city forever. You know, if you see a movie based in New York City, there's usually a Knicks game involved more than a Nets game. Like, I think it's going to take a very long time um, for that the Nets to overtake the Knicks if that would ever happen. And it's going to take even just in Brooklyn, you know, for them to, you know, for kids growing up to only know the Nets being in Brooklyn, right. And only know the Nets um, having success there. I mean, you know, there's people like me that grew up with them being in New Jersey and then making the move. And then, you know, I mean, until recently they haven't really had much reason to cheer for them. So I, I think there's a lot of work to be done on that front for sure. And, and I think the Knicks being good actually could help the Nets because if the Nets were to meet the Knicks in the playoffs, I think it would be, good for the quote unquote rivalry and, um, and actually put some juice there with both teams being good. You know, Steve Nash is RJ Barrett's godfather, Mike D'Antoni, Demar Stoudemire on Steph. You know, there is some cross pollination to, to build around if, if you're trying to make them actual rivals. But I, I just think that this year is good for that, but I don't think it's by any means, you know, it, uh, uh, an end all be all. I think there's a lot of work to be done there for the Nets to kind of make themselves the city's team. If that's, if that's even on the table, given the Knicks extensive history. Yeah, I think it's a lot of people like my age and like up or feel like our Knicks fans. Let that younger generation, it's not seen the Knicks win anything in 20 years. It's one that's more up for grass. They're not from like a Knicks family. I feel like this is the time where like if this team wins a title or two and has all these young kids walking around the city with the Harden jerseys or the Durant jersey, I think that's the opportunity the Nets have here. That That's very well said. I, I'd say the exact same thing. All right, Alex, thanks for all the time. I really appreciate it. Before I let you go, how can you follow social media keep up with your coverage for The Athletic? Yeah, I'm at Alex two underscores Schiffer, S-C-H-I-F-F-E-R. The Alex underscore Schiffer was taken, so I had to go with two underscores. So S-C-H-I-F-F-E-R. And Alex, I appreciate it all the time. And make sure you check out Alex's coverage on The Athletic. There's a lot of great stuff about the Nets every day. Thank you for having me, man. The Two-Minute Drill. All right, two-minute drill time, talking about the New York Mets and their injuries, and boy, this is not getting any better for the Mets. Since we last checked in with them, they've had a lot more injuries. I mean, going back to that Atlanta series, I said after the Michael Conforto, Jeff McNeil injuries in Tampa, hey, if we go 3-3, three and three, that's great. We did go 3-3, three and three, but they had Ken Bar get hit in the face and break his nose, and he's on the IL. Pete Alonso has sprained hands on the IL. Jorianmo came up for a spot star, had short of solo soreness on the IL. Janeshi Farkas ran to the wall at City Field. He's on the walking wounded list. There are now 17 Mets on the injured list. And the frustrating thing about this, besides the fact that the run of injuries they did was absolutely absurd because it's literally, I feel like every key player on the roster has gotten hurt, except for a handful. And they have no 40-man rosters to do anything. They have three spots in the 40-man roster they can play with between guys who are actually help, available to use, and they're all pitchers. They have no available position players in the 40, which is absurd. 
The frustrating thing also is that it feels like no one's actually close to coming back. Brandon Nimmo on a rehab assignment. Couldn't get through it. He has a nerve issue with his hand. So his assignment gets shut down. We're trying to calm the, sw- the swelling down, the nerve issue, before he can actually come back. J.D. Davis goes on a rehab assignment. He plays a couple of games. Hits a homer. Had a stiff next Sunday. He's out of the lineup. And then we found out yesterday he's coming back to New York. He has more hand problems. He has hand swelling. We don't know when he's coming back. Noah Syndergaard. Remember him coming back from Tommy John surgery? Made his first rehab start. Came out fine. Second one, supposed to go four innings. Out after one, the velocity goes way down, and we hear it's elbow discomfort. And at that point, you're thinking, okay, forget him. He's not. He's going to be out at least another month, if not longer. Remember Carlos Carrasco with the hamstring? Remember when back in mid-May, he was supposed to be potentially coming off the injury list to start on a Sunday? They shifted him to the 60-day IL. He's not throwing anymore. He's just playing catch. He's not even back on the mound yet. Something is weird with that situation, and there's a lot of those in the Mets where we just don't expect anybody back until, like, third week of June, end of June, July. It doesn't feel like there's any help coming soon. Maybe you get Pete Alonso back next week. Maybe you get Luis Guillorme on a rehab assignment. Maybe two weeks you get him or Pilar back, but there's not a lot of help coming. But despite all those injuries, they're doing okay at this point. They're still in first place in the NL East, thanks to that strong pitching staff. And they're winning just enough games to stay afloat, get the job done. The problem is here, the Smoking Mirrors Act is not going to last forever. They already had a three-game losing streak in there. The Rockies stink, and the Rockies are off on the road, so you're hoping you at least split, probably win three out of four would be ideal. You have the Diamondbacks next week who also stink for three in, in Arizona. But after that, you have a lot of games of the Braves coming up who are seem to be right in the ship. After the Mets left Atlanta, they they ripped off four straight wins. After we got the Pirates, they beat the, won the Red Sox last night to go back to 500. You have the Padres seven times. That's not going to be fun with a half-depleted roster. You have the Cubs coming up. There's some more division games against Washington and Philly. They need to get help. June is in brutal for them over the years. And they're going to fade in June if they not get more buys in this roster. Zach Scott, the GM, interim GM, he used to keep working those phones, get as many bodies in here as possible. I get his tough spot because everybody knows the Mets are hurt. Everybody knows they have big expectations. Everybody knows that for a marginal upgrade, they're going to try and rob the Mets blind and say, okay, you want two months of Eduardo Escobar? Fine, give me your sixth best prospect. And no sane general manager is going to do that. It's too early to trade for Chris Bryant because a lot of these teams are not going to give up the farm on Memorial Day. They're going to wait till June, end of June, July 1st, while they even consider making moves. Which means you guys got to tread water until you get there. And just sort of pick up whoever's useful out there and get options. The Mets need players in here who can prove to be at least competent against big league pitching. Because they have a couple guys in their roster right now who are completely non-factors on offense. Khalil Lee, I like the kid's a prospect. He's got great speed. He's got good defensibility. He strikes almost every bat. He cannot play the big league right now. Lofredo Tovar, the backup second baseman. He's also pretty much a zero at the bat. That's a problem. The other big problem is that of the big guys they have healthy, the biggest one is Francisco Lindor, and he's getting nothing done for them. Entering Wednesday's game at the Rockies, getting just a buck 85, three homers, nine RBIs. That's not good enough for a guy getting paid $35 million a year, especially when you're the only big guy in the lineup. I know Don Smith has not been great. I know James McCann's been hurt, but they are not the same type of star potential as Francisco Lindor can be. Lindor is a guy who can carry this team for three weeks if he's hot. Right now, he's anything but. You guys like Tomas Nito would be 
hitting 300 in May and carrying that on forever. Can't expect Jonathan VR to be the stud leadoff guy who anchors your lineup. You need these big guys who are healthy to carry that weight until some of the other guys come back. And it's going to be a while. I mean, you're not talking about seeing Conforto or McNeil to the end of June. Who knows a Brandon Nimmo? J.D. Davis, who knows? It sounds like it could be anywhere from like a couple of days, another week and a half. Guillaume is at least two weeks away. Same for Polar. These guys who are here have to hit. I got to give some credit to Luis Rojas, too. I mean, is he perfect as a manager? No. Some of his bullpen usage is questionable, but at the same time, a lot of those decisions are coming from upstairs going into the game. He's done a good job managing. Certainly, he's had basically a different guy get hurt every day. The fact that they're still in first is a miracle at this point. The front office has to find him help because I feel bad for Luis. He's sitting there just shrugging his shoulders at the game like, what am I supposed to do? I have no one left. The big guys we're still saying have to produce. It's that simple. That's the only way this team is getting where they hope to this year because you have to make yourself at least be relevant. Expecting you to stay in first is going to be tough just with the break start revving up, but you got to be in shouting distance by the time these guys come back. You can't just have one of these five-win Junes where you completely fall off the map. You need to stay relevant, and finding a way to do that is going to be what makes or breaks this Mets season. All right, that's going to do it for this week's show. I want to thank my guest, Alex Schiffer, for calling in on the Zoom to talk all about the net situation. If you want more stuff like this podcast, click a look at why we don't need a six-part documentary from ESPN on Derek Jeter. Check out the blog over justsendthesuffering.wordpress.com. Go subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Google Play, TuneIn, Stitcher, Spotify, Amazon, all the usual suspects. Simply search for Just End the Suffering, your favorite podcast platforms. You find all episodes there. Leave your feedback and star as well. I like the podcast even better going forward. You can also follow me on YouTube, Mike Phillips on YouTube. You can find my chat with Alex as well as other video segments on the podcast up there as well. You can also follow me on Twitter at mphillips331. That's M-P-H-I-L-I-P-S-331. And that's going to do it for our special bonus show this week. And coming up next, we're going to have our baseball check-in Royal Days coming up. We'll catch up on what's going on in the baseball world, summer movie talk, and more. Until I hope you have a better week than Clippers fans. This has been the Just End the Suffering Podcast. I'm out.